0: Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. And I'm speaking to Professor... Vanessa Lim from the University of New South Wales. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth. Now, what was it that inspired you to study the government of life? All
1: right. Well, let me say, let me start by saying that the government of life is actually the title of a recently published collection of essays on Michel Foucault, biopolitics, and neoliberalism that I co-edited with Miguel Vetter. And so the idea of this uh, volume is recently the courses that Michel Foucault gave at the Collège de France have been published, and um, so every year a new volume has come out. Um, and this these courses, or this new material, has really changed the way in which Foucault's thought, thought was understood as a whole, I'd say. So prior to the publication of the courses, a lot of interpreters or readers saw that Foucault shifted away from the post-structural analysis of power and was now more interested in aesthetics or ethical preoccupations around self-invention, authenticity, or the the problem of subjectivity in short. And now on the basis of these courses, it's become clear that really what his, his analysis or his interests have shifted towards is what he now calls the problem of government or the problem of governmentality. And that is really... What these courses are about, they provide us with the genealogy of liberalism and neoliberalism, not as forms of political ideology or forms of state, but what he calls governmentality. Now, what this means, governmentality, or what he means by governing human beings, he makes a strong point that government is not a political activity and so forth, is really still very much highly contested and and, uh, debated. And so what this volume, The Government of Life, tries to do is shed light on this new idea of of government by bringing out the the relation to, uh, with his analysis of biopolitics. So that's just sort of on the term, The Government of Life. But you asked me what inspired me to study The Government of Life. And so I probably have to go back to Nietzsche and say, yeah, it's really sort of Nietzsche and uh, this idea of life and politics in Nietzsche that, that that got me onto this track. And as is well known, uh, Foucault himself was tremendously influenced by Nietzsche. And it's, it's the way that Foucault takes forward some of Nietzsche's ideas, uh, develops them and takes them in a new direction that, that I find inspiring.
0: Could you explain the term biopolitics?
1: Yeah. Look, that's of different different ways to approach this and and, and i'm really sort of really talking about this term in foucault's work and one could say that in his own work he has at least three different uses of the term biopolitics so for example in his book uh, the history of sexuality he will use the term biopolitics to define a turning point in the history of Western, western political thought where, which he just defined as a radical transformation of this traditional concept of sovereign power uh, that started in the 17th century. Now, this is w- one meaning. Um, then, uh, in his lectures on one must defend society, he will use the term biopolitics to speak of technologies and discourses that play a central role in the emergence of modern racism. And then, finally, in his lectures on the birth of biopolitics, uh, and on security, territory, and population, he again, he will use this term to describe a kind of political rationality um, at stake in the liberal mode of governmentality. So you have three very different uses of the term, um, interpreters sort of trying to figure out how they're all linked together. Now, one could say, well, there's, in one way, all of them overlap. And this is, I'd say, the main thesis of biopolitics or biopolitics and the crucial hypothesis um, Foucault puts forward is saying that when this idea of biopolitics emerges, this is the first time, and this is I'm almost citing Foucault here, in the history that the biological existence of the human being and of of the human race, really, the population, was reflected in political existence. So as Foucault puts it, this is the fact of living was no longer as uh, it says, an inaccessible substrate that only emerged from time to time, but it ha- passed on to knowledge field of control and power field of intervention. That's almost a citation from uh, the history of sexuality. So in order to um, uh, illustrate this a little bit, whereas for Aristotle, the, he famously defined the human being as a, a, a political animal, and what he was interested in was really what distinguished uh, the human being from other forms of uh, life, that is, their reason, their language, and this is what makes the human being political for Aristotle. Now what happened is what shifts into the foreground is not anymore uh, reason or logos, as the Greeks would say, but it's it's the, the human being's biological existence. So that is completely new. So really, life in a sense, and that, that, that explains the term biopolitics. Life becomes the object of political power.
0: Why is the connection between government and biopolitics a problem?
1: All right. One way to think about it, so from in, in sort of terms. So what happens with biopolitics is that. The object of biopolitics is not anymore the legal subject or the individual that can be captured uh, by the law, for example. Uh, and also, let's say, what is right and what is wrong, which formerly used to uh, you know, fall under this category of the juridical re- person that can be, let's say, debated and, and, and argumented and be decided through parliamentary procedures and so forth. So we have a shift away from the legal subject and the law towards uh, what Foucault calls the life of the population. Now, the life of the population is not anymore the object of the law, if you wish, but becomes, and then this is this link to government, becomes the object of government, and you have these which, uh, uh, for course of course, re-describes as, uh, or defines as, sort of, on the one hand, governance, and on the other hand, governmentality. Now, what these terms exactly mean is is, is, is debated, but uh, the general idea is that now human beings are not anymore governed or controlled by law, but by a whole other set of techniques and procedures and uh, processes that uh, have an influence over the way that we um, say govern or con- conduct our ourselves behave, so it's a different way of of controlling the human the human being and the whole population, which is pro- becomes problematic.
0: Right. Would that be connected with social norms?
1: Look, um, maybe one way of thinking about awareness before um, uh, that is of so the idea of normalization and the whole idea of, sort of disciplining right influencing controlling the human being by through discipline right this is sort of has one aspect of of Foucault's work and it was largely he was here focusing on the human body it's like what really how do we transform the human body into something that is efficient uh, can be uh, basically put to work right so like the children in school, they have to learn how to sit down on a chair for a long period of time. They have to form the right muscles in the hand so that they can hold a pen and write and so forth. So all, there are all kinds of techniques that have been invented to, to transform the human body into something that uh, can be utilized, right? Now uh, disciplines, right? Now what is new with biopolitics is that here what is of interest is not just the body but it's the life of the population it's like so here for example like one way we can think about this differently is Foucault when he talks about uh, government and neo, you know and, and neoliberalism for example is that uh, and governmentality that there's a whole new way of talking about of thinking about security so whereas formerly let's say, security, health insurance, all these things have been subject, have been fallen under, let's say, the portfolio of the state or the welfare state, and were um, decided uh, there were political processes related to, to this. Now, um, it's really become, uh, shifted into the responsibility of the individual, you can say sort of the production of the entrepreneurial individual, that takes care of itself that basically is responsible for its own security that is responsible for uh, for all aspects of its life so we have we see with this when um, government and biopolitics connect we see sort of a a shift away from politics towards all kinds of other uh, techniques that are non-political that are uh, employed to Control the conduct, or conduct the conduct of human beings. That's how Foucault puts
0: it. Is there a connection between biopolitics and neoliberalism?
1: Yes, I think. Um, I think one 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 of these, one of these shifts I've already pointed out, and this is sort of a shift away from politics and uh, the state, and, repl- and, away- and really away from society, That's also, um, shifting politics away from society, and, and replacing them by other, other things, such as, for example, economics. So, whereas before, maybe we would tend to say, well, are uh, guided by obeying or disobeying the law, for example, now it's about maximizing or minimizing utility or about profit. So, it's, it's basically this... A different way of—it's just a complete, a complete shift of paradigm. That's why Foucault talks about this sort of really radical transformation of of power.
0: How does philosophy compete with political life?
1: Oh yeah, he, here we're really going. in I, I know that you've read some of the some of the the work that we've published in this a volume, The Government of Life. So. I'm assuming that you're here. This is a question, really, that comes from the ancients. Is that am I right? in, in interpreting your question? yes, that's right. Good, good. So, uh, so this is this is interesting because what happens in uh, part of um, some of the, like, the courses of Foucault that have been published, interestingly, he a returns to the ancients, and uh, and he's particularly interested in this competition between philosophy and and, and politics. So. It, it is a classical theme in the ancient, and it really turns around this question of the good life. So the Greek Greeks um, asked themselves or debated over what is um, the good life? Is it the active life of the politician? Is that the highest form of life, or is it the contemplative life of the philosopher, or the other the other way around? So, in uh, some way or other, one could say that every philosopher since Plato can be read as answering these questions. What's higher, politics or contemplation? And so here, so that was, there's a sort of an open competition between uh, between the various philosophers, but also the ones leaning more towards politics, the others more leaning towards con- contemplation over this. But you ask how, right? How does philosophy compete with political life? And in the ancients, most certainly, it was still by the way of debate and argument. But there's one particular school of, of philosophy, and, and these are the cynics. I think they, they at least had ambition to, to do more than just argue and provide arguments. They really wanted to provide examples of life. And so they were competing with other philosophers, but also with the, the given ideas, ideas of the political life by leading an exemplary life that inspires others and that also impacts the way the uh, human community uh, is organized. So uh, impacts us as individuals, but also as social and political beings.
0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Professor Vanessa Lem about the government of life. Who were the cynics and what was their philosophy?
1: Yeah, well, look, uh, uh, cynicism um, is, is a school of ancient Greek philosophy that was practiced um, in the 6th century before uh, BC. And uh, the, the name cynic uh, derives from uh, the ancient Greek uh, kynos, which refers uh, to the dog or to something as dog-like. What started out as really an insult, the, the cynics were called dogs because of, of their way of the re- really rejecting conventional uh, forms of life, but, and, and, they are, and they lived on the street, and they really took up this inset, insult, and most famously under Diogenes of Sinope, who is um, the, probably the most renowned cynic, and turned that insult into really, let's say, praise and so uh, diogenes was known for living in a tub on the streets of athens and he was sort of eating out of uh, out of his bare hands or a, a bowl so he was really a living a dog like life but he took this as really a sign of of his strength and and virtue that he could live under the bare minimum right without really no material comfort and so forth so, so these are the cynics. Now, what is their philosophy? It, in really general terms, um, the the cynics uh, shared a lot of common ground with various uh, philosophies uh, around at their time. But um, if one would have to sort of pick out a few highlights, I think one was de- definitely the rejection of of any kind of conventional notion of happiness. Uh, that involves money power fame and so forth and on on the contrary this really very strong return to their self-sufficiency so they made one could say they even even a test like how how much could can you really how much can you reduce the needs of life right so and the second and the way to do this was according to them to live in accordance with nature so i think that's probably another big punchline, this idea of living according to nature, which again is, is not really something too original for the cynics, but it's more, I would say, the way that they literally embody it. So living according to nature really means for them, you know, uh, living according to the sort of uh, bare minimum. So so there's um, uh, asceticism is, of course, a big theme for them. Poverty, so there's some followers of the organism who gave away all their property to live Street and in poverty, so they're really strongly dependent on on gifts uh, from their community. One last feature that I should probably point out um, is what is known as uh, cosmopolitanism. So uh, uh, Diogenes has this very famous uh, encounter between Diogenes and Alexander the Great and where really uh, Alexander the Great at the time was really the representation of Greek empire and Diogenes would sort of counter that by saying, I am the real citizen of the world is me, Diogenes, and not Alexander the
0: Great. Right, so I I do remember Diogenes, and he said that he used to carry a small wooden bowl around with him so that he went down to the river. He could actually put some water in his bowl and drink from it. Then one day when he was at the stream, he saw a young peasant boy cupping his hands together and drinking from the stream. So he thought, well, I really don't need this bowl anymore. I've been carrying this around with me for years and it's just been an unnecessary consumer good. So he destroyed his bowl.
1: No, I think the cynics were basically thinking about our today's world, what we believe we need... uh, which in general it, it turns around property and material things. I think what we can learn from the cynics is most certainly this idea of that a fulfilled and happy and truthful life requires really nothing, or almost close to nothing, in the cynics' eyes.
0: Close connection with, with nature, too. There's quite a, a famous right. painting depicting him sitting in his barrel with his lantern. And that's being right. surrounded by dogs, that's right. Uh, and e- even when he walked through the town with his lantern, people used to ask him, w- "What are you looking for?" And he used to say, "I'm searching for an honest man." Right. So that right. that leads me into my next question: yes. What is the cynic's understanding of truth telling?
1: Yeah, this is a very good, very good question, and and I would hear um really, I think what might be good, the one who, I'll just rephrase it the other way around, the one who sort of brought this question back, or brought this figure of the cynic as a teller of truth, is Foucault. So that is uh, interesting. And now, what Foucault says about the cynics is that really, for the, the cynics, telling the truth is not simply a matter of uh, going out in the marketplace as the, in the, the, the public space, as we would say today, and, and tell the truth, but it is really for the cynics that uh, really embodying or living this truth. Yeah, literally, it's not just a way of saying, but it's a way of life. And so, in the cynics, truth really becomes radically visible, if you wish, and the concrete. It is really reflected in every not only what they say but in everything they do uh, the what they the way they eat the way they sleep in everything in the in their whole entire life and interestingly this idea of of truth as something that you embody that really becomes body uh has later been taken up uh by Nietzsche as the question is like how far is it possible to actually embody truth to really Live the truth that we believe in. Typically, we we just say, well, Truth is just something that we maybe we we claim or, or talk about, or and so forth. But it's not something that we uh, really fully embrace and in, in all our with our entire uh, mind and body, if you wish. And so this is what is peculiar about the cynics is that they embody truth but also advocated their lifestyle, like right? there, there's something radically public, shared, and common about a truth-telling in the cynics.
0: Are there people today who still follow the philosophy of the cynics? Look, I think, interestingly, yes. So I
1: think the, the cynics have had, although in their time the, the cynic movement did not last uh, uh, very long, And it clearly, I think some interpreters uh, say that it has a strong influence on early Christianity, and see, for example, uh, Jesus himself as an example of a a Cynic philosopher. But there always have been sort of turns of the Cynics throughout the history of, of, uh, say, human civilization. In particular, in times of crisis, uh, the the Cynics are very popular because of, the sort of critical potential uh, of their truth, right? They're always radically opposed to tradition, convention, and they're known for their courage to speak the truth as well. And so we t- typically see them in, in and they have a return in the Renaissance. And now again, let's say more closer to our age, Nietzsche took up the cynics again and in many ways identified himself or inscribed himself in the cynic tradition. Uh, but also Michel Foucault, who has this curious return to the cynics, and then there's a, a German philosopher, Peter Sloterdijk, who uh, wrote a book on the cynics, and uh, clearly, um, in, one could, I think, would make a good argument saying his his own philosophy also in, in line with this tradition. Yeah.
0: So perhaps many people in this country are still living quite a similar lifestyle to the cynics, not, not really from choice, but out of necessity, given that there are so many homeless people with very few possessions living on the streets.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think this is a, is a very um, good point you're making, an interesting comparison. But uh, let's not forget that for the cynics, they actually claim that you need to be born a cynic. So you do not become a cynic as a matter of choice. By this, they meant that not everybody really has the strength or the virtue uh, to live like a cynic. So for them to, to live according to nature, to, to really this whole uh, project of returning to the bare necessities of life, actually requires culture. So it's a, a, the cynic has to go through a long process of cultivation and training to be able to actually live according to these, you know, most basic needs of life. So for the cynic, they, they always underline how becoming a cynic really means hardship training and this long process of cultivation to be able to live according to one's needs and, and necessities. So I think so to, to turn things around and, and refer to what I've sort of briefly mentioned above, it, the cynics really invite, are an invitation to rethink what we typically associate with needs or mean by needs and rethink what it what it is we really need to live a fulfilled life and whether all this assimilation of material things with some and not with others, as you pointed out, is, is just not the right way forward to mm. a truthful and...
0: Well, it's a very interesting topic. So thank you very much for coming onto the program today.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Thank you so much. And I've been speaking to Professor Vanessa Lem from the University of New South Wales.